where you live determine your chances of developing type 2 diabetes? And how much impact does your income or living circumstances play into this risk? I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Jillian Booth about her work on the environmental determinants of health and diabetes. Dr. Booth is an endocrinologist and a scientist at the Center for Urban Health Solutions at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She'll be a plenary speaker at the 2019 Diabetes Canada Professional Conference, which is taking place in Winnipeg this October 2nd to 5th. Today, we've got a sneak peek of some of what she'll be discussing at the event. Welcome, Dr. Booth. Thank you so much. It's, I'm thrilled to be here. So, Well, we've talked a lot about population impact and population health on the podcast, so I think a lot of the listeners are familiar with it, but I wanted to sort of get your input on why you think that this is so important when we're talking about type 2 diabetes risk. Well, we've seen a surge in the number of people with type 2 diabetes over the last few decades, and so it's become not just an an issue that's important for individuals, but it's important for society. Obviously, diabetes is very costly and it's uh, complex to manage for people, but, but it also has a big burden societally and also the determinants are societally driven. So if we think about it, our genes haven't really changed over the last 30 years, but there's been an increase in the prevalence of obesity. And so I think we understand that you know, it's, it's been these other drivers that are happening and, and that we can potentially modify some of those, such as the way we move around in the world, so our physical activity levels, our diet. These are sort of things that are bigger than, um, than the problem that any individual faces. Right. So, I mean, it's not, and we've often talked about how it's basically, there's this idea that it's just diet or exercise or a lifestyle decision, whereas we, you've looked more at some of the big picture things. And I know when we had Teresa Tam on the show, who's the Chief Public Health Officer for Canada, she had referenced your work on walkable communities and diabetes risk, because people often don't see that there's a societal and then sort of a more... Um, environmental risk that's outside of the personal. And so can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, I'd love to. So we've done a lot of work on how neighborhoods are designed. So how the neighborhood makeup is, so the number of uh, st you know streets that are connected, how um, densely populated it is, as opposed to, for example, you know, older, more traditionally designed neighborhoods pre-World War II were created around pedestrian activity and not around cars, whereas a lot of the more modern suburbs are more sprawling and they're zones such that um, the stores and places that you might walk to are actually not accessible by foot, so you have to get in your car and drive. And that car dependency is really something that's um, become more of the modern norm. Um, so one of the things we were interested in looking at was whether the way neighbors are designed and how conducive they are for walking or other activities, whether that influences your risk of diabetes. And we found, similar to other studies, that people living in more walkable neighborhoods are more likely to walk and they're more physically active. There's actually really compelling research showing that if you live in a more walkable area that you're much more likely to get your um, recommended number of minutes of physical activity per week um, than people who live in a car-dependent area. Um, and with all of that, we've also seen that those more walkable areas are also associated with lower rates of obesity and uh, a lower likelihood of future of developing type 2 diabetes in the future. So lower incidence, so the number of new cases of diabetes in the population 
and also less likely to have hypertension, like high blood pressure, diagnosed and other risk factors for heart disease. And what I find really interesting about your work, and, and this um, is one that comes up a lot because it's an example that people can really understand. Like you can understand that if you're not in a place where you're able to walk a lot, that that can increase your risk of obesity, that can increase your risk of being unhealthy. But you've looked at so many different areas of environmental impacts. And by environmental, we mean things that are in your environment that may have an impact on your diabetes risk. And so I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because you've looked at everything from socioeconomics to, um, you know, how, where you live in a community to, um, I believe it was, home, um, you work with David Campbell on homelessness. Mm -hmm. So in the whole spectrum of things, how do you think having that sort of 360 view helps? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it's really helpful in building the the whole picture. I think I'll give you an example. So some researchers, well, a lot of research on the built environment, for, for example, has sort of focused on one risk factor at a time. So we know that if you live in a walkable neighborhood, you're more at risk of diabetes. Um, but there's other factors there that are also kind of contributing. And so we need to understand how all of those things play a role. Because in the bottom you know, at the end of the day, the policymakers are going to be looking at the evidence and figure out what should we do to make the population healthier? How do we reduce the burden of diabetes? I mean, it's not quite that easy because obviously we'd love to have a health in all policy kind of approach. Um, but there's, it's certainly on the radar that policymakers are having. And how do we kind of align all of these different policies to actually make the population healthier? Um, so, but one of the problems is, that, you know, we want to get people, people moving more, obviously that's a good thing. But we've also found in some of our recent research that even if you live in a really apparently healthy neighborhood, you know, it's walkable, there are other kind of hidden risks in the neighborhood that people aren't really conscious of or thinking about. So for example, if you live in a walkable neighborhood, even though you may be less likely to walk, there's actually maybe more exposure to cars being, you know, car congestion and idling, and that actually leads to higher levels of pollution in some of these neighborhoods. So I just had a, a PhD student, Nick Howell, publish a couple weeks ago on a study looking at this, and he found that if you live in a walkable neighborhood that has low levels of traffic-related pollution, your risk of um, diabetes and high blood pressure is actually quite, is really low. It's even lower than we would have expected. But if you live in a walkable neighborhood and you're really close to a major road where there's lots of traffic-related pollution, you're, you actually don't see any benefit of living in a walkable community. Your risk of, you know, the benefit you get from walking is actually kind of um, being matched by an increased risk of diabetes and high blood pressure associated with air pollution. So there's a lot of these sort of complexities that we're trying to disentangle. Um, another example is the food environment. So you could live really close to a fast food swamp. Um, and that we've also shown directly is related to an increased risk of obesity and diabetes. So being able to walk places is great, but there's all these other sort of risks. So I think one of the big ticket items we've learned is that you know, the answers and the solutions to the problems aren't necessarily straightforward or easy. We, need, we know we need to get people moving. We don't know always how we're going to do that on a population level. We know sort of broadly, but, you know, when it comes down to the bottom line, you know, the answers are going to be not just one thing, but, 
know, uh, dozens or hundreds of little things that really need to happen to actually change the way we live our life. And I think that makes a really good point, because if there's one thing I've learned doing this podcast and working in this area is that diabetes is so complicated. If it was an easy answer, we would have solved this many, 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 many years ago. But there are so many factors that play in from, you know, talking to Jenny Bruin about the cellular level of diabetes straight through to looking at this sort of thing on a population level. So what do you see as sort of the key ingredients? And I know you obviously don't have the answers because nobody does, but what do you see as some of the key ingredients that might help down the road? So I've been focusing on the population ingredients. So what kind of policies would help to reduce the burden of diabetes. Um, and I should be clear, I'm talking about type 2 diabetes. Yep. I think we that was sort of implied. By, I hear a lot from people with type 1 that when we, we talk as population health researchers a lot about diabetes, and that's what we're talking about. Um, I think there's an pretty clear evidence that, you know, that there's certain big ticket elements in the in the population or in our environment that are promoting diabetes. So, you know, one of the things we focused on is also socioeconomic status. We know that there's a growing divide between people who um, are wealthier and people who have um, less financial um, resources in terms of the risk of diabetes. And part of that is around cost and availability of healthy foods, relative ubiquity and cheapness of, uh, you know, you know, nutrient-poor foods or fast food. Um, there's, so you know, there's growing evidence that the rise in diabetes is probably disproportionately higher in people who are more disadvantaged socially. Um, so that's, that's a whole problem that needs to be tackled. And part of that may be mitigated by you know, uh, economic strategies, whether it's around basic income, and we'll actually go there because we know we had a basic income pilot that was that was um, was recently stopped. But um, there is some evidence, for example, that food security is um, reduced uh, with better resources for in payments for social assistance, and and that other strategies, you know, that may be more outside of what an individual could do. Um, may be beneficial in terms of promoting better um, food and behavior, uh, dietary behavior patterns. Um, also, physical activity, as we said, we know how to, that you know the way that we design cities and and op the, that it results in different opportunities for people and more opportunities to be physically active. Um, the solutions aren't easy, so we know what an ideal neighborhood might look like. Um, and but how much that would actually offset things is, is very challenging and how to actually make policymakers change the way we do things is actually challenging. Um, spanning transit's one of those big items that might actually get past um, some of these barriers because even if you live in a neighborhood that's less walkable, if you can actually leave the car at home and get on to a public transit, it's a cleaner form of transportation, more efficient, and potentially also gives you more opportunity to walk. Yeah, and I, I think that it's funny because people look at this and, and there's such massive change that seems to be needed in order to make these, you know, these risk factors lower. But at the same time, I think that, and I could be wrong and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like 
people listening, if they were looking for things to do that would help with population risk, there might be some smaller things. Like, you know, if you're going, if you are, have the opportunity to donate to a food bank, for example, making sure you're donating healthy foods, because we have a tendency to, to donate the worst things that we don't want in our cupboards anymore, you know, our, our pastas and things like that. Looking at, you know, opportunities where we, you know, maybe if we can afford a gym membership, but there's opportunities to give back to community programs to get youth who are at higher risk um, gym memberships, things like that that maybe we could be mm-hmm. thinking about because I, he- I I know that it's hard sometimes when people look at this as a huge societal issue, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on breaking it down a little bit. Um, I think those are great points, and I think you, you were alluded earlier to Dave Campbell's work where he was looking at um, you know homeless populations and actually had partnered with home, uh, people who were experiencing and living with homelessness or had in the past as to their challenges and and food was the number one thing they brought up and how, you know, even within shelters and community, um, you know, you know, locations for obtaining food that, that there's just this standard that people are not cooking in a, in a healthy way and, and giving people good options. Um, so I think that, you know, there's certain high-risk populations who we really need to focus on, and then there's also the the general approach. So, I think for any person, you know, my strategy when I talk to patients is often, you know, can you take transit? I mean, I know it seems like a, a small thing, or but it actually does it ha- has been linked to higher rates of physical activity, um, being able to take transit rather than drive, or driving a little further away and parking further away, or getting off of transit early. Um, so there's a number of different things that people can do. One really interesting insight we found was that um, living in a walkable neighborhood was associated with a t- twofold higher rate of walking or doing active forms of transportation during the day. But if you live and work in a walkable neighborhood, then you actually had like a six to sevenfold higher likelihood of walking and, and you know, moving around actively rather than taking a car. So, so you know, people need to be thinking about how they commute to work and their work environments and, and what they do during the day. I mean, a lot of people are now thinking about using apps to, you know, or, you know, their smartphone will vibrate when they need to stand up or walk around. So I, I think that there, there's so many opportunities, but, you know, we need to be thinking broadly. And there has to be some changing of our social norms. It's become normal to take elevators rather than walking upstairs and to, you know, jump in a car when you need to go somewhere. So it, you know, we kind of have to chip away at that. (laughs) But there's, there's sort of structural things that can change. There's policies that can change. And then there's individual awareness and behavior. And you're going to be speaking, as we mentioned earlier, at the Diabetes Canada, their 2019 professional conference, which is coming up in Winnipeg in October. And so we've talked about a few of the things that I think will probably make it into your talk, um, which will obviously be a little bit longer because <laughs> it's a plenary. But are there any other things that you think you want, and any small takeaways, like if there was a healthcare professional who isn't able to make the conference, that you would want them to take away? I think for healthcare professionals, we need to think about the environment in which people live. Um, often we give the same advice to everybody, and we don't always think about the context in which they live. I think I think most healthcare professionals do, but I think the larger context of so what are the 
examples you could adopt into your life that have to do with where you live and work and, and your circumstances in terms of affordability of foods and you know the busyness of life and dropping off children and going to work and all of those kind of little opportunities during the day to think about as opposed to just here's a diet, <laughs> here's a recommendation to be physically active. I think the other piece that is really clear is that you know, we, we often talk about in public health about upstream versus downstream uh, approaches to diabetes prevention, for example. Um, the downstream is kind of what we think about when we see that somebody has prediabetes and, you know, we've screened them, you know, <laughs> doctors have done the screening and then give them advice on what to do to try and lower the risk of converting to type 2 diabetes. And we don't really have a coordinated approach uh, at least in Ontario, to diabetes prevention. I think in most parts of the country, and there are clear randomized trials showing that, you know, intensive lifestyle strategies with weight loss, physical activity, and dietary change can re massively reduce the likelihood of progressing to type 2 diabetes and may even revert someone back to having normal glucose levels. Doctors and dietitians and nurses can do so much, but we don't necessarily have like a standard approach of how people who've been recognized as having prediabetes are managed and, and what kind of supports are in the community to help them achieve those goals. So that's kind of why, kind of bringing it back to your first question, why we're also taking a kind of what we call an upstream approach, which is looking at what can policy do? Like what can the, the government do to actually make it easier to incorporate physical activity and, and uh, healthy eating in your daily life. So maybe if we do that as well as these downstream approaches that will have fewer people actually developing prediabetes in the first place and kind of shift behaviors in general in, a, on, in the whole population. So I think that's, that's part of the piece as well. Um, what do we do with people when they have prediabetes, which is a major challenge, um, and then what could we be doing more broadly? And those are really, really good things to be thinking about and, and to, uh, to end off on today. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much. So if you're a healthcare provider and you're interested in attending the Diabetes Canada Professional Conference in Winnipeg, you can find out more about that by visiting diabetes.ca slash professional conference, and that's where you can learn more and register. And if you've enjoyed today's show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. While you're there, take a moment to rate or review the show because it really does help other people to find us. If you have a question about this topic or others, you can always reach Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca, or you can contact us on social media. We're on all the channels under at Diabetes Canada. Thanks again for listening.